my name is Sam Sheen, and welcome to our podcast, Captivated Audience. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and professional colleague, Marilyn Berg. And today's guest on our podcast comes to us from France. Welcome to Captivated Audience, George Volushin. Thank you for having me. George, can I please ask you to give us a bit on your background and where you are currently working? Hello, my name is George Voloshin. I'm head of branch of a company based in London, but I'm based in Paris. Uh, we work with a number of financial services institutions, corporates, law firms, helping them to investigate potential violations of anti-financial crime regulations, including AML, CFT issues, anti-bribery and corruption, economic sanctions, and also fraud. We do know that you have a particular interest around sanctions, and that ties in really nicely with a series of podcasts we've been doing on Swedbank. We've covered different aspects of the case so far. One area we haven't covered as yet is in relation to sanctions, and there were some interesting comments made in the Clifford Chance Report. So before we dive into that, can you just tell us in simple terms what is meant by the term sectoral sanctions? Okay, so sectoral sanctions are really specific to one particular country, Russia. They were enacted in 2014, in July and September, first by the US and then very shortly by the European Union. And they aim to target a number of sectors of the Russian economy, in particular banking and finance, energy and defense, that are deemed to be strategic for the Russian economy and that were supposed to have an influence on the Ukrainian politics at the time. Tell me, George, do these sanctions restrict all businesses? So these sanctions do not prohibit all business activities. They prohibit only a certain type of activities. So they mostly restrict investments into equity and debt for energy firms. They also restrict under Directive 4 certain activities in the field of oil exploration and production as regards special oil projects, including Arctic shale and deep water projects. And these sanctions have been, at least in the case of the U.S., uh, expanded and reinforced uh, with the entry into force of a new legislation in 2017 called CATSA, which reduced the maturities of debt and equity that can be traded, also made a number of restrictions around uh, oil projects, so making them basically global rather than only Russia-focused. George, the USA issued a notice, I think it was in or about the time sectoral sanctions were being introduced. They were talking about tactics they had observed parties using to evade the restrictions. Can you briefly tell us about what some of the more common tactics that were seen by people trying to evade these restrictions? Of course. And when it comes to sectoral sanctions, the main idea is that ownership is what drives the whole process, ownership and control. The first of them is quite common, the use of opaque jurisdictions and various multi-layered ownership structures that just serve to conceal ownership and to hide the beneficiary of these different structures from, from the banks, from the counterparties, from the regulator. The other technique is around use of nominee directors and shareholders, so people who are proxies, who create a screen, a shield between uh, the UBO and, again, the regulator or the intermediary or the counterparty who are supposed to prevent these activities from happening. They also have uh, sham divestments when people divest their assets without relinquishing control over them. Now, this actually led, it's a very interesting thing, to the modification of the 50% rule in the US in August 2014. Because at that time, when they introduced uh, sector sanctions very, very quickly, a number of Russian oligarchs sold, in quotation marks, their assets to their relatives, or they just sold their assets to unrelated companies so that their ownership was under 50%. Then the government, the US government, started to aggregate ownership so that if we have two oligarchs owning 25% each, it's still 50%, it's still sanctionable. 
And you also have control versus ownership, which is particularly important for the European Union, because in the United States, you have no obligation to screen for control. Although, again, OFAC tells you that you must exercise a lot of caution and really be careful when you have companies that are owned 50% or more by sanction targets. Control is when you have an influence over a company which is disproportionate to your uh, level of ownership. For example, if you own 10% of uh, the company voting stock, but you can still dismiss its entire board. Or you have a loan that this company has taken out from you which is equal to its share capital, which basically puts it at your discretion. And if it doesn't pay the loan, you can become its, the company's owner. I think it's very relevant also for the Square Bank report uh, that we're discussing today, because there were a number of findings that related to tax optimization, I would say, when uh, a company that owned 100% of a certain company in order to not be liable for taxes in Russia, shifted its ownership to another individual who owned 90% after this change, but this individual still was entitled only 10% of dividends, whereas the, the initial shareholder retained the right to 90% of the dividends. Uh, this is not sanctions evasion, but this is, you can say, potential tax evasion. Again, it's up to the regulator to determine. But this is also another technique. Coming back to understanding who you're dealing with, could you give us your point of view on what the elements that the banks and other financial institutions need to be alert to in this screen? To just to make sure that the sectorial sanctions and restrictions are not then violated. As I said, the main concern is around ownership and control. So who controls, who, who profits from a certain activity uh, by a certain legal entity. So the idea is, of course, to have a full understanding of the ownership structure up to the UBO level. So the goal is really to have enough information about who controls or owns a specific structure, a specific entity. What is the rationale for the economic activity? Why is this happening at all? Why does your client need, for example, if they, they have a number of entities involved in, in a complex structure, why do they need to spend so much money in possession costs for an exchange? Does it serve a particular purpose or is it just a way to evade sanctions or evade it? It's the same principle as for AML, CTF, KYC, but with um, really the focus is on who is behind at the very most, I would say, remote level? Who is behind? Who's the UBO? George, we did an episode on HR and our clients, those high-risk non-residential customers based on the findings in the Clifford Chance uh, Swedbank report. In one case, it mentioned a fairly large number of people being rotated for either ownerships or acting as directors or nominees for these companies. Would you say that what is described in the report could be a common tactic? Yes, it's a very common tactic. There are people who earn a living from being directors and uh, nominee shareholders. You have articles in the media describing people who are directors of maybe 2,000, 3,000 companies at a time. So the objective is, of course, to hide the beneficial owner. And unfortunately, some jurisdictions still allow UBOs to hide behind nominees. So you can very rarely, when you pierce the veil, corporate veil, and understand who is behind, unless these people disclose to you themselves their own records. But again, then you must be sure that these records are authentic, which is another concern, because they may be falsified. Well, we've just tiptoed into the Clifford Chance report where there's some discussion around sanctions, but actually the first thing that's referenced is the Magnitsky scheme and something that took place around 2013. I'm just wondering if you can give that some context and also talk a little bit then about the sanctions regime that came about. 
Okay, so Magnitsky is a Russian lawyer who died in prison in 2009 after having exposed a massive money laundering and tax evasion scheme that benefited, according to his findings, a number of Russian high-level officials, leading up to the highest level of Russian government. And he worked for Hermitage Capital Management, uh, which was uh, the origin of this campaign in the US and later in Europe to punish these Russian officials for the death of Magnitsky and for the money laundering scheme. And so in 2012, the US government adopted a law that allowed it to impose sanctions on people who are linked to this scheme in particular. So they made a number of designations of Russian officials. And in 2016, there was another law, the Global Magnitsky Act, which made it possible for the US government to punish any individual anywhere in the world for human rights abuses and violations. In December 2017, Donald Trump signed an executive order which implemented for the first time this Human Rights Act on a global scale since which time we have seen a number of designations of very different people without any relation to Russia, by the way, for various crimes in the human rights area. In the case of the Swedbank report, the reference is made to the fact that the Magnitsky scheme or the scheme that he discovered that Swedbank would have, like many others, immediately gone and had a check to see if they had any links to those individuals. And it sort of transpired that initially Clifford Chance claims they didn't find anything wrong. So yes, I think Swedbank made a number of a number of checks on these different banks involved because some of the clients came from other banks in the Baltics, uh, including banks uh, that are quite respectable because well known in the in the Nordic region as well. The initial conclusion was, of course, that there was no legal risk as such. But I, as I read the report, uh, there was also no evidence to support this finding. And yet, the report states on several places that Swedbank did not monitor the quality of the sanction screening data and that the screening systems did not always include complete and accurate data about entities and individuals subject to sanctions. One conclusion I draw from the report is that Swedbank might lack both people, resources in general, as in IT. It's useless to have a system that can detect hits against sanctions watch lists if there is no one to do the job behind. It's a combination of things. It's the level of awareness of people on the front lines who do real business. It's your IT infrastructure, which allows you to capture these different red, red flags and analyze them. It's your access to information and your ability to get this information either from your client or from a different source. So to be able to outsource data collection or be able to have a frank discussion with the client and just uh, make known your red, red lines so that you can get what you need to understand what was happening, because it's very often the case that people don't understand what is happening. And of course, it's support from the board and their management team. So if you have a problem, you can discuss it. When Clifford Chance give more detail about the sanction transactions, for example, at the Estonia branch, they talk about 19 outgoing transactions, but they trace through who received the payment and to whom it was transferred. And if I understand correctly, some of this was on the online banking platform. So they tried to follow the IP addresses and they discovered... One was linked to Iran, and then there was another IP address linked to Cuba, even though the customer supposedly lived in Finland. And the payment ended up being sent by a non-sanctioned corporate customer to a vessel crew located in Crimea. So as I read that, I thought, is it a tactic? Does this even tell a story for us from a possible sanction perspective? There's not much of a story there, unfortunately. So it's, it's a collection of findings that are quite uninformative, actually. When looking at this, it's difficult to say whether there was any real violation of sanctions or not. Uh, you need to have information on the dates of this transaction, 
on the different counterparties involved, so any intermediary banks and which ones, uh, so that you know if there are sanctions remain in place in the US or the European Union, you should immediately spot any US EU person involved. Uh, although they mention uh, U.S. correspondent banks towards the end of this section. When I read the uh, findings regarding the use of IP addresses in Iran and Cuba, this does not tell me necessarily that the sanctions were breached because the person could be traveling to these countries, which this person can always do, and making payments using the web uh, application of the bank. Whereas the mo more troubling aspects that I noticed were when payments were made to companies that are involved with the business in Crimea. Of again, uh, they're clearly saying that the payments were not made to the companies in Crimea, but rather towards the project in which it's, these companies are involved. Also, uh, there was a finding about uh, a Crimean bank to which the payment was made. And this is really troubling because this was after the sanctions were imposed. And they very interestingly note that the US correspondent bank did not notice that either. So it processed the payment. Reading and understanding these different kind of information that is then submitted within the SWIFT message or on these transactions, what is going on? There is a section about the resubmission of uh, SWIFT messages in which it is very clear to us that the bank tried to process payments through a correspondent in the US. Uh, these payments were apparently for individuals or for companies based in Crimea. And uh, effectively, when the bank rejected the payment, it was resubmitted without this information. It was just removed from the payment instruction. In one case, the bank processed the payments without asking further questions. In another case, it was rejected. The bank went with another correspondent bank, which did not reject the payments because there was no longer any reference to Crimea. Because I think when I read information about people based in Iran or Cuba, even, even for travel, that send money or make operations with their money, it's a red flag, very big red flag. I think people should have been alerted immediately to that. But I suppose what happened is that there was no, at the time, no way to know that in real time. Stay tuned for part two of our discussion with George Volishin, where we take a closer look at some of the KYC findings described in the Clifford Chance report on the Swedbank case and how different factors related to both KYC and transactional activity could indicate possible illicit activity. Feel free to reach out to us directly on our website, captivatedaudience.eu, if you'd like to take part or if you have any suggestions. And as always, you can reach out directly on LinkedIn. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.